0: A project of the Center for the Study of
1: Europe at Boston University. Welcome to the EU Futures Podcast, Exploring the Emerging Future in Europe. I'm Olya Jordanian, an EU Futures Project Coordinator at BU Center for the Study of Europe. Today is February 23rd, and I talk to political theorist Eva Hosteiner, a lecturer at the University of Bonn, Germany.
0: So I think we are really witnessing an interesting moment in European politics because for the longest time uh, Europe has really been tackling acute crises and the overwhelming narrative has been to preserve the status quo, to kind of tackle the crisis and just maintain Europe as it is. But now with uh, what has been happening uh, through right-wing populism in Europe, anti-Europe skepticism, and also the election of Donald Trump, I think we are seeing an opening up of more futures. So I do think um, we now see more citizens interested in going beyond the um, two options of either uh, keeping the EU as is or going back reverting to a kind of ethno-nationalist focus on national sovereignty. I think we are seeing a moment where citizens get more interested in revitalizing possibly the European Union. So I think in the realm of politics there are always multiple futures despite these narratives of kind of lack of alternatives, alternativlosigkeit as it's called in German in this very popular phrasing of Margaret Thatcher and so on and Angela Merkel of course. Um, But I do think we are now at a at a kind of crossroad where, again, multiple futures are possible.
1: Oh, that, that's interesting. Can you tell us a little bit about your research about federalism? Yes. How do you see federalism in the context of the European Union, evolving Evolving European yes. Union? How is how's that uh-huh. going to work in the future?
0: Uh-huh. So I, as a political theorist and uh, also intellectual historian, am very interested in looking at competing conceptions of federalism. So what do different people mean by federalism at different points in time, different political constellations? Um, so in the past, let's say, 200 years, people have meant very different things by federalism. They, they've been talking about either the um, unification of governments or the decentralization. And if we look at debates in the European Union in the past, let's say, 20 years, um, when people say federalism... They often uh, associate with that kind of a fear of a too tight integration, a fear of a super state, a fear of a loss of national identities. I think uh, a scholar from Rutgers University, Dan Kellerman, has uh, called it the F word. So federalism has been really associated with um, a loss of something. Um, Whereas I think um, one could make the argument that the EU is already a very federal um, association. And that uh, looking at it through federal terms in terms of kind of the the competing uh, of various interests on different levels of government could really help us analyze certain conflicts that are going on in the EU and certain crises and maybe certain solutions to these crises.
1: I see. Uh, What is the role of democracy and the role of choice in terms of impacting the emerging future in Europe?
0: Yes. That is an interesting question because I mean it depends on what you mean by choice, I guess, and what you mean by democracy. So does choice just mean citizens having different electoral choices, different parties and candidates to choose from, or does it also mean the kind of spectrum the the um the wealth of political outcomes that uh, citizens can bring about um, and then of course, when you talk about what democracy means and which type of democracy you look at. You have, let's say, majoritarian democracies um, that tend to be, as we see it in the US, more polarized, um, and you have very different political outcomes available, um, or in more consensus-oriented proportional systems, you have more kind of a tendency towards compromise, um, centrist positions and the eu is an interesting case because people have a lot of electoral choices so they can um make electoral decisions on the national level for european parliament they can get engaged as citizens um through civil society um but i think what many uh, citizens in europe feel uneasy about is the fact that the policy outcomes seem to be so limited so even though They have a lot of electoral choices. The outcomes seem to be relatively centrist, always compromises. And I think in this environment of, again, populism uh, that offers so simple answers and kind of pretends to respond to people's immediate desires. um, So in this environment, people feel unhappy with this kind of limited choice in terms of outcome, even though, again, they have a lot of choice when it comes to uh, different democratic forums. Um yeah.
1: If we go beyond the fact that citizens can influence uh have a political influence through elections, um uh, how do you see the role of broadening citizens' influence in terms of making their choices bigger, their influence bigger? Mm-hmm. How how can we deal with this problem?
0: Mm-hmm. Huh, that is In fact, a difficult question, because I do think that citizens in Europe, especially in this political moment, um, are discovering new ways of influencing politics, again, through civil society. So not just through elections, but by getting engaged, not just in their states, but in kind of transnational European initiatives. So I've been reading a lot about new initiatives for Europe, especially in the face of right-wing populism, like uh, a new march for Europe, this Pulse of Europe initiative that brings together citizens in various um, towns in Europe. So I think people are discovering that there is something like a a European public where they can voice their opinions. Um, In terms of the European political system, I think in the existing institutional framework, there's only so much that citizens can actually do. And it has to do with this multi-level government system where you have always an outcome of compromise, more or less. So even though people can voice their opinions, um, their actual impact is always going to be limited. So I think if you want a Europe with um, more satisfying political outcomes to citizens, you would probably have to think about um redesigning the institutions a little bit and making citizens impact also onto the european level uh more visible and more more um, palpable to citizens
1: um, how can this be achieved
0: <laughs> well i mean there has been this long standing discussion of a european democratic deficit and i think steps have been taken to um to also reform the European Parliament, or or rather to, to broaden its influence in the European policy-making process, and I think it's a step in the right direction. But I do think um, that one could think about strengthening the legislative further in the EU. Um, but I also think that uh, national politics could do better in this respect, because um, if you look, for example, at the German national political system, uh, German federal elections are rarely about EU issues, even though, of course, the German government has a considerable impact on the EU level. Only now with a new candidate for, for the Social Democratic Party, Martin Schulz, who in January declared his running against Angela Merkel, we have somebody who has a very distinctly European policy profile, so who's not just defining himself over national issues, but who's being honest about the fact I mean, not to praise Schulz too much, but who's being honest about the fact that European politics also should play a large role in national elections. And I think this is something that also citizens in other countries could learn from, demand from candidates to um, formulate a position towards the EU, um, to actually uh, um, make EU issues a part of party programs. This is something that citizens in their nation states could demand from their governments.
1: That's a very interesting uh, perspective. Um, If we think that democracy is failing us, what can we do about it?
0: The question is whether democracy is failing us, or whether we are failing democracy in a a way... It's Um, it's
1: actually a a two-way question. It it works Uh both ways. We also fail democracy, and democracy (coughs) is also failing us. So, Mm -hmm. what can we do about it? Mm -hmm. It's it's a new question. We have not been asking this question. This is the first time I'm ever asking this question to any of our Mm -hmm. interviewees. Thinking that, um, what if we come in a situation Mm -hmm. and that we have well, we have all these political arang- mm-hmm. political and economic arrangements, and we are kind of used to living under these conditions, yeah. but we don't go beyond wanting or dreaming mm-hmm. about something else. Mm-hmm. And, in, and we, we are, may, may appear in a situation when actually democracy is failing us. Mm-hmm. That, g- given that, saying that, I mean, the rising populism, mm-hmm. rising um, power, uh, I mean right-wing parties and their power. So, given the history, all the mm-hmm. historical de- developments that we know happened in Europe many, many years ago, and then we are having this kind of developments in the 21st century, yes. and if, if democracy is going to fail us, mm-hmm. what are we going to do?
0: Mm-hmm. So, I think it depends on what we expect from democracy, and I think, to come back to this very fundamental conceptual question, what we think democracy is. So, if we understand democracy simply as an institutional toolkit, Um, to kind of channel citizens' voices and opinions through the political process, um, then, of course, it would be the duty of citizens to make democracy work, to go voting, to voice their opinions on a regular basis and to accept political outcomes. So I think what we are witnessing right now, kind of this corrosion of democratic norms, the disaffection of citizens, has to do... Also with the fact that um, citizens have not engaged enough for a long time in the political process. But of course, on the other hand, it is a central duty of political parties to offer, again, choices to citizens. To offer competing choices and to to, uh, give them an opportunity to make democracy work. I'm not sure... I'm not sure how to how to uh, answer that well. That's
1: more of a question of, uh, you know, just uh, kind of imagining what could have been. But, uh, yeah, no worries about that.
0: I think it's super interesting, but I would really have to think about that Absolutely. more.
1: Absolutely, I do understand. Mm.
0: I mean, one interesting question certainly is um, whether there should be limits to democracy in order that democracy can work. So um, I've been thinking a lot about The um, US mechanism of checks and balances to ensure that democracy doesn't go awry and doesn't kind of um, destabilize itself. Um, And other countries have other mechanisms to kind of limit the influence of citizens at some point to make sure that um, certain core elements of the constitution are not violated and to kind of set a bar to what democracy actually can do. But that, of course, is always kind of a last, last option, a last safeguard to really make sure that nothing terrible happens. So, for example, the German constitution, uh, the German Grundgesetz, has these elements um, of so-called militant uh, democracy that ensure that the first articles of the constitution can never be erased or amended. But beyond that you obviously need engaged citizens and you need responsive political parties and you need certain satisfying outcomes. So here we are again at the kind of distinction between input into democracy. So do citizens have choices and outcomes? Do they get what they want? And what we've seen in the past decades is that democracies also work well when or as long as enough welfare is created. So um, we are really facing now an interesting moment where the question is what happens if real income maybe doesn't even decline but just stagnates? Will that satisfy citizens enough? Is kind of perpetual growth necessary to make democracy legitimate in the eyes of the citizens? Or will there be a moment where citizens also realize that democracy delivers other things other than just good economic outcomes, such as the guarantee of core rights. And I think this is also an interesting question for the European Union, ultimately, whether um, the EU regards itself not just as a guarantor of peace, which was, of course, the original idea, and economic growth, another original idea of the EU, but also a guarantor of freedoms, of rights, especially in the face of rising kind of hybrid authoritarianism around it.
1: Do you see this question as a rising uh, or an important question that politicians are debating, uh, I mean, uh, on the threshold of elections in Germany?
0: Um, I do think so, yes. I, I hear that a lot. I'm not entirely sure. I would be curious to talk with EU politicians to hear whether this is actually on the agenda or whether it's only basically a rhetorical tool to reply to answer to citizens worries about let's say Donald Trump or or Putin's Russia etc Um I would uh, I would like to know uh, from people who actually do the political agenda setting whether Europe will kind of um, change its priorities a little bit and um, and that is a kind of relevant and acutely relevant issue, of course, when it comes to dealing with with um, violations of the EU rule of law, when it comes to the behavior of Hungary and Poland and their own kind of deconstruction of their democracy. Um, so this is kind of where it comes down to the wire for the EU, I think, to, to say what it wants, what we want from the EU um, a system of norms or just a very loose club with very limited scopes.
1: In what kind of Europe would you like to live in the future? Mm,
0: I think I would like to you've probably uh, gathered that from my from my reply so far. I would like to live in a kind of strong, value oriented, revitalized Europe that offers an alternative to this reversion to nationalism, ethno nationalism that we've seen in the past. But for that of course you would need some political and economic restructuring, and you would ultimately need a sufficient, let's say, reawakening of European citizens, because ultimately, in the political systems we have, politicians ultimately respond to voters' approval and disapproval. So if there's not enough demand for such a renewed Europe, we will likely not get it. Is
1: there anything I didn't ask you about uh, in terms of future of Europe, uh, in terms of current trends in, in Europe and the European Union that you would like to share your thoughts about?
0: Mm-hmm. Again, when I come back to my thinking about federalism, I think the EU should really think more about how to stabilize its internal cooperation, how to deal with dissent, how to deal with the um, policies that I've mentioned in terms of Hungary and Poland, um, basically how to make sure that it remains stable and united uh, despite the, the heterogeneity and the, um, of course, diverse needs and goals of the, certain, of the, of the different uh, political communities. Um, because again, when we talk about democracy in Europe, we are not just dealing with a democratic deficit um, uh, in the EU institutions. We're also dealing with varying democratic deficits in the member countries. So I think the EU and its citizens should become a bit clearer about what they, what their standards are. We have the Copenhagen criteria when it comes to accession of members. We have very limited demands on members once they are part of the club, especially when it comes to these soft criteria such as rule of law and democracy, and minority rights, and with the refugee issue, I think we are realizing that the EU must face these ultimately moral questions and has to define a, a common role in these matters.
1: Thank you so much for this interesting conversation.
0: Well, thanks for having me. Thank you. You've been listening to the EU Futures Podcast, a project of the Center for the Study of Europe at Boston University, funded by a Getting to Know Europe grant from the European Commission Delegation in Washington, D.C.